I'm Noel Holzman, and this is Open Content from Yahoo Finance. I made this podcast to bring attention to the entrepreneurs and innovators in Canadian business. Every week, I will be sitting down with someone who's leading their industry, pioneering a new product or service, or just making important things happen. This week, the new 90-10 rule, how 90% of your revenue can come from sources you never would have expected. When we didn't have uh, money to spend, you know, you try to make it up with hustle. Hi, my name is Andrew Tai. I'm the CEO at Moto Insight. Andrew started down the kind of career path that many young people dream about, at least those who dream about business. He got his undergrad degree from the Ivy School of Business at Western, before moving on to do investment banking in Manhattan with Morgan Stanley and J.P. Morgan. In 2010, however, he returned to Toronto to join Onyx, the blue-chip private equity powerhouse where if you're talented and hardworking enough to get into the door, you can amass a considerable fortune. Andrew, however, was more interested in cars, not in the traditional sense as in shiny four-wheel objects that go fast. No, he was interested in the automotive industry, something he saw in desperate need of being disrupted. Looking at the car buying process, he saw an experience that was inefficient, unpleasant, and grossly outdated. Andrew's answer was, and remains, unhaggle, a platform designed to eliminate all of the back and forth, suspicions, and hard feelings that accompany buying a car. Unhaggle would simplify and solve these issues. That was the idea, and then came the hard part. Here, Andrew explains how his journey started. I've always had that entrepreneurial spirit and an itch inside of me, even going back to you know, uh, grade school and high school and through university, I always ran little side hustles. And you know, uh, going to business school was uh, just the natural step. I think you know I was interested in business, uh, and you know, uh, coming out of uh, business school, uh, investment banking and uh, you know finance uh, just felt like a, a career where I could learn a lot. Um, but uh, that entrepreneurial itch never really quite uh, went away. And so when I wasn't cranking away on spreadsheets uh, during the day, uh, I was uh, throwing uh, business ideas against the wall, trying to figure out what would stick. Uh, and you know, eventually, um, you know, one was uh, compelling enough that led to our current business uh, and uh, decided to take a little bit of a, uh, you know, a, a career turn uh, and uh, you know, traded in my pinstripe suits and ties uh, for uh, my uh, hoodie and jeans uh, as an entrepreneur. So you pivoted while you were at Onyx to start Unhagel. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get into the specifics of Unhagel. But I, I've read that you, when you launched this, or certainly when you were considering, you didn't know much about cars, or certainly cars weren't a passion for you. Uh, raising money uh, was a challenge. And I also read that as you got into it, you realized that some of your initial assumptions you know, were not what the reality on the ground was. Can you, can you walk me through what that sort of that, that pivot process was to deciding to launch on Hagel and some of the challenges that you, that you faced and had to overcome? Yeah, for sure. You know, the, the decision to leave a, what otherwise would be a, a lucrative career and, and, you know, a, a highly respectable path yeah. um, was a, uh, was very difficult. Um, but at the same time, I, I went back to the fact that if, I didn't do it now. I think you know the the more obligations in life, and the older I got, and the more advanced in my career I got, uh, the more difficult uh, it would be. Yeah, uh, and so that was one of the the, the key things I wanted to make this uh, change earlier in my career um, to try. Uh, and if I if it didn't work out, finance would always be there. Now, that was uh, one thing that uh, certainly was always a, a consideration. But having uh, started the the business, the 
path uh, was uh, certainly not a straight line. And I think that's often a misconception uh, where we look at you know companies that just appear to be overnight successes, if you will. Uh, yeah. You mentioned the fact that a lot of our early assumptions uh, were uh, proven to be incorrect. Well, you know, over well over ninety percent of the revenue that we generate today as a company comes from revenue streams and products that when we started the company did not exist. We had not envisioned them. So tell me when you started it, what were you envisioning? What did you think was going to be kind of the silver bullet if there would be one? Yeah, I think you know, there's that uh, saying that you know, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Uh, and you know, when we started the business uh, as Unhaggle, uh, we were building a consumer facing marketplace uh, that uh, was gonna make car buying easier. The, the challenge there is um, you know, getting attention uh, from consumers uh, is difficult, challenging, and expensive. Yeah. Uh, and so when you're building a marketplace, you need lots of consumers uh, in order for, to, for it to make it viable. Um, you know, and customer acquisition uh, is expensive. And that's where, you know, you, you uh, hear and, and see a lot of companies um, that work in the consumer space, uh, burning piles and piles of money, right, uh, you know, to, to try to build an audience. And the difficulty there is, you know, you can't just make it up with volume, right? Yeah. If, you, yes. if you're losing money on customers, more volume doesn't necessarily solve the problem. I think, you know, uh, at a certain scale, of course, you can you can um, uh, kind of uh, turn that uh, around. Yes. Um, but for us, uh, that was one of the, the big things that, you know, we underestimated how difficult it would be uh, to build uh, a consumer audience. Uh, and, you know, uh, seven, almost eight years into this, um, you know, we're still, uh, that's con- the consumer marketplace part of our business continues to be an important part uh, of our business uh, and it continues to grow. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly it was far, far harder uh, and yeah, than, than we had anticipated. I, I fear you may be too diplomatic to, to answer this, but I'll ask you anyways, had you started this, in the Bay Area or in Boston or in Austin, Texas, Seattle, do you think your experiences would have been different in either in terms of an ecosystem that you could draw upon for energy and ideas and investment? Uh, or or is, this, is Toronto very comparable in that regard? I think it would have been very different, actually. Okay. I think it would have been very different. And I want to be clear that uh, I don't necessarily mean, I don't mean that as uh, a regret or uh, even um, a a negative uh, about starting uh, a business uh, here, right? I think one of the unique aspects about our our business is uh, we've never raised any uh, institutional financing. Our business has um, been, uh, some like to call it bootstrapped uh, for the most part. And the ability to do that and sometimes you know um, run at a slower pace, but at a more, grow grow at a slower pace, but a more sustainable, pace. Um, we were allowed to do that here. Uh, and I think it was, uh, there was less uh, pressure uh, to, you know, go big or go bust, if yeah. you will. Uh, I think, you know, uh, that that would be uh, different in some of the environments that you mentioned. I mean, you know, we're seven, almost eight years into this business now. Um, and, you know, continuing to grow sustainably, um, you know, have been uh, growing profitably, um, you know, for, for the last, uh, you know, a handful of years. Uh, and, it, it was a it wasn't as uh, sexy of a way uh, to build a business when you read kind of the the business press you read about you know the massive rounds of, of funding uh, that uh, are raised um, but then you know uh, what uh, doesn't get a lot of attention on uh, is you know where many of those uh, companies end up I remember you know a lot of the competitors that were in the valley let's say yeah. um, that uh, uh, 
you know, were started around uh, our time. Um, and I remember spending a lot of hours and uh, attention and effort, you know, fretting over those competitors and wondering, oh man, they've raised so much money. We haven't raised money. What do we do? Um, are, are we outgunned? A lot of those competitors don't exist anymore, right? And so, you know, uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing that the Canadian way, I think that there's, there's still a lot of merit. It's just different. In terms of the competitive set and the other, the other tech ecosystems that are out there, how does operating in the automotive space, clearly it's a technology play, but the product people would be seeking is a car or truck or van, SUV. Was that a headwind in terms of people's sort of excitement for the opportunity? I don't know if it's the sexiest industry to be involved in. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, uh, especially when you're trying to hire, let's say, tech talent. Yeah. Well, um, whether that range ranges from engineering to product to design, it's not top of mind uh, for most, uh, you know, talent that's working in in the in the tech space looking for opportunities. I think, yeah, you know what, automotive is really where the biggest yeah. disruption uh, is, right? Whether it's social or media or even like food tech or marketing yes. tech, there's, yes. there, there's, there's a lot of other spaces where it's a lot more buzz, it's, it's, a, it's a sexier kind of uh, industry to, to work in. But uh, you know, for us, the reason why we're excited about automotive uh, is that it is a little bit sleepy, which means the opportunity for innovation uh, and the impact that we can have is far, far greater. And I actually think we're starting to turn the corner now. Um, we are seeing more, uh, not just companies start in the space, but uh, you know, venture money flow into the space around you know, that car buying journey, that car buying experience, and even more broadly speaking, mobility as a whole. What's the innovation that's happening there? And you know, just look down the street, right? Uh, look at the number of cars uh, that are out there. Let's not underestimate the impact the automotive sector uh, has uh, on consumers, uh, as well as uh, on you know the economy as a, as a whole. And in my view, I think automotive is actually one of the last uh, final frontiers, if you will. When you look across all retail segments, whether you're talking about books, coffee, food, travel, why not? Every retail segment, the opportunity to innovate uh, in automotive uh, is still the Wild West, when you look at how cars are bought and sold, yeah, and you look at the customer experience uh, versus how I can even, you know, buy a cup of coffee uh, or order food uh, or practically anything on my phone, right? Uh, the opportunity, that gap between what is a great customer experience to what is uh, commonplace in automotive uh, is actually one of the biggest opportunities, and we're excited about that. And, and why is that? Why has that gap persisted? Because I, I don't think anyone would argue or push back on the notion that it's a very compromised experience. Uh, the last time I went to buy a car, I honestly thought the sales guy was going to hit me. <laughs> we were just negotiating. But but clearly, it, we were cutting to the bone. Yeah. And, and it was not a pleasant experience. Sure. And yet, to your point, uh, that gap still exists. Is it because there's this sort of entrenched belief that this is how you buy a car? Like, why has there not been a greater willingness to experiment or innovate? I, I think there's a number of factors okay. there. Part of it was just time. If you go back 15, 20 years ago uh, to the dawn of the dot-com boom, if you will, uh, where you know there were dot-coms for practically everything from books all the way to cars, right? Uh, you know, in the, the, the late 90s, there were a number of, you know, car tech companies uh, that were going to revolutionize car buying. 
I think at that point in time, people were just starting to wrap their head around buying something as simple as a book online. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, with the purchase of a car, far more uh, just pure dollar figure. Yeah. Uh, you know, the transaction is more complex. Um, there's more of an emotional attachment. Uh, you know, when it comes to buying a car, it's a much more physical good, right? Uh, part of that was just time. And if you look kind of what's happened over the last, you know, decade, decade and a half, one by one, like dominoes, right? Every other industry starts falling, right? Yeah. In terms of digitization of the retail experience, right? Um, and, you know, today, uh, you look at, let's say, usage of the Starbucks app or any of the, the food ordering apps out there, right? That that exists. Five years ago, you know, no one would have believed you if you said uh, that coffee buying is going to be completely transformed by technology. Something as physical as buying a cup of coffee, yeah, right? Um, but that's where uh, as time goes on, every industry, you know, a, a friend of mine got uh, engaged uh, recently and they bought their diamond engagement ring online. Again, would have been a crazy concept, you know, just a handful of years ago. And so when you kind of think about the most complex transactions and you think about across the retail sector and what has yet to be disrupted, by my account, practically everything else uh, has gotten there. Uh, and, you know, there's a new norm in terms of customer experience uh, to be able to, you know, order online or at the very least buy online and pick up in store true omni-channel uh, experiences that are seamless, that are convenient, that are transparent, right? The final two, I'd say, that are kind of uh, the most complex and the most expensive, what are the two most expensive things uh, uh, or two biggest purchases people uh, make in their life? A home yeah. and a car. Yeah. And those are, are, I think, we're seeing some interesting disruption uh, and opening up uh, in real estate. But uh, you know, for us, automotive uh, is where we're playing, uh, and we're uh, seeing that inflection point happen now. So part of it was just time, and I think to your point around, you know, is it just ingrained that this is the way people buy cars? I think along with time, you look at demographics and you look at how a millennial would buy things, right? They actually, when they go through a car buying experience, a lot of the the customers that we spend time with and you know studies that we read, they are gobsmacked. But like this is how the car buying yeah. experience works, right? So I think you know as time has gone on and as you know demographics have shifted, that's part of the reason why we really think that uh, where we sit right now, it's an inflection point in the industry. Customers are demanding those better customer experiences; they expect them uh, in every retail sector. Uh, and you know what kind of when it comes to automotive, um, that domino's uh, about to fall. Coming up. The future of car ownership and why Porsche may be on something big. Now this this part is a little tangential, but as we talk about millennials and cars, uh, the actual notion of a purchase mm -hmm. as opposed to just accessing, right? Yeah. Uh, what are the what are the numbers tell you there in terms of people's relationship to ownership on cars? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know. Uh, Last year, and, and you know, certainly it looks like uh, we're going to uh, take a run at the record this year as well. When you look at the number of cars sold, right, and you know the the car park itself, and the number of vehicles out there, uh, we're selling more cars as an industry okay. than ever before. And so, you know, I think it's uh, not entirely accurate uh, to say that car ownership is dying uh, or or dead. Uh, do you do you feel that that's a? And I wasn't meaning to suggest that, yeah. but do you feel that that's sort of a prevailing view? out there that people are shifting away from buying cars because they're doing the zip or, you know, the other options that are available? There's certainly uh, a lot of headlines about it. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's it's a narrative um, that we're hearing more and more of. You know, my view on it uh, is that no change happens overnight and, and it's going to be the spectrum, uh, quite frankly. So, you know, 
I, I did a little experiment myself, um, you know, when I was thinking about mobility. Uh, so I live uh, downtown in a condo building. Uh, and, you know, for a period of time, I was in between cars. Yeah. Uh, and there was a car sharing, uh, you know, uh, a company that had a had had vehicles inside my building, actually. So you would think super convenient, right? Uh, why do I even need to own a car? And I decided to try it out uh, yeah. for a little bit. So there's car sharing in my building. There's actually a car rental place right next to my office. Uh, and whenever I needed a car, I, I used one of those experiences. Um, but what I found was, you know, it does, just does not compare to the benefits of ownership. And what I mean by that is I was out for dinner one night uh, and I forgot that I had uh, a car share and I was only booked for, let's say, two and a half hours. And I returned the car a couple hours late and I got slapped with you know, this massive penalty, which business model wise makes sense because if someone else was waiting for that car, they, they need to put a heavy penalty to discourage um, people from you know bending the, the rules or not returning cars. But you know it's little things like that. You know not being able to leave my stuff uh, in in the car, not being able to have the car just set up exactly the way I want, uh, and not having the car that I wanted, um, you know, whenever I wanted, right? Because you know it was booked by someone else. There's all these these things that make it, uh, whether it be car sharing or rental cars, a far different experience than true ownership. And so I, I think there's there's this spectrum, right? On the one end of the spectrum, uh, think Tom Cruise in Minority Report. Okay, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but we're all hovering around in these yes. pods yes. and nobody has cars. Car ownership is dead. Okay, that's one end of the spectrum. I think we are a very, very, very uh, far away from that. Um, you know, uh, I uh, I think I still have a very long career ahead of me, but uh, I, I don't expect to see that uh, in my, uh, uh, certainly in my career on that, on that one end of the spectrum where no one has a car ever. Yeah. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, it's, you know, car ownership as it exists today. But as you kind of move towards the the middle, that's where, you know, you see more interesting models. So I think there's a, a time and place for car share. I think, you know, it hasn't caught on uh, as as mainstream as, you know, uh, what we once would have hoped. Um, you know, uh, here in Toronto, you see Car2Go pulling out for a number of reasons, but it just hasn't caught on as, as much as we would have hoped. I think what we're seeing now is actually uh, a... a uh, you know, number of new models coming out. Um, you know, one of the most exciting in our space when it comes to mobility is subscription. Yes. Right? And what that means is the benefits of ownership when you have the car, but kind of like Netflix, it's, you know, uh, back in the day when you would mail in your, your DVDs and they'd send you new ones, it's yours as long as you want it, right? But you have the ability to send it back uh, whenever you want, either cancel your membership or get a new one. Right. And uh, we're seeing automakers and dealerships starting to tinker with this uh, concept um, where, you know, you buy one subscription, uh, it includes your maintenance, your fuel, uh, your insurance, uh, and you get access to this portfolio of cars. But it's different than car share in the sense that it's your car while you have it. Benefits of ownership. You can leave your stuff in it. You can, um, you know, have it set up exactly the way you want. Um, it's you know, almost akin to just very short term leasing if we really want to dis uh, di di distill it down. Um, but it's providing much greater flexibility, but far lower commitment. And that's a new model uh, that uh, that we're seeing happen. So Porsche was probably one of the first uh, out there in the market, um, early uh, experimenter. You pay, you know, $2,000 a month, uh, and you could have any number of, of these Porsches uh, in this category. If you wanted to upgrade, you could pay $3,000 a month yeah. and get, you know, access to some higher end uh, of vehicles. Um, but, you know, while you have it, it's yours. Once you don't want it, you bring it back uh, to to the dealership. You can either pick up and pick out another one in the fleet uh, or cancel your membership. Uh, we think that that that's a, uh, a a interesting model. Still needs to be proven out. Um, but my point is that 
it's not one size fits all. There's that spectrum uh, of ownership. I agree that it's not going to be on either one of those ends. It's not going to stay the same as it is today. But you know that world of minority report is still very very far away, uh, and we're just experimenting with what alternate models will uh, will, will fill the gap. Um, but I think it different consumers and different segments of consumers will want different things. One of the challenges, of course, and the opportunities with Wendell and Hagel is that you've got essentially two critical stakeholders. One is the consumer mm-hmm. and uh, all of the challenges that we've discussed about onboarding them and awareness of the platform and a willingness to use it. The other side is the dealer network. What is the... What has been your experience around uh, the dealer's uh, willingness to innovate and think creatively and embrace what, you, what you're offering? We've seen a, a remarkable change even just in the last seven, almost eight years that we've been doing this. Right? Yeah. I remember in the very early days when we were just getting started, I spent a lot of time talking to dealers and uh, I vividly remember one experience where a dealer told me, the internet's ruining my business, I don't want any part of it, end yeah. quote right? Yeah. Laughable today, yes. right? But, uh, you know, um, I actually don't think that dealer is still in the business uh, and it has yes. moved on. But, uh, you know, we certainly don't see much of that uh, today anymore. I think uh, the reality is dealers are consumers and they're out there buying things on Amazon and using the Starbucks app yes. uh, and, you know, uh, buying online and picking up in store at Walmart or Nordstrom's or practically any other retailer, uh, they all have elevated the the customer experience. And then the, so the dealers themselves recognize how far of a gap they have when it comes to customer experience uh, buying a car. And I think uh, it's almost, it's hard to pinpoint exactly the moment. It's, it, it's been kind of uh, an evolution, but certainly it feels like the light has been switched uh, and dealers are recognizing that they if they are to compete and uh, you know continue to to succeed, they need to adapt uh, and deliver more modern experiences um, that uh, are competitive with you know other retail sectors and what customers have come to demand and expect. And so uh, we certainly have seen a remarkable attitude shift um, both at the dealer level as well as uh, at the automaker level. And you know we're seeing it in. Uh, activity in the marketplace, whether it's automakers, um, even beyond Porsche, practically every luxury brand now, I think, has either announced or launched some sort of subscription model, okay. um, you know, experiment. Uh, it, uh, we see a lot of brands now investing in uh, online and digital experiences that allow customers uh, to do far more. Um, you know, and I think Canada is actually a a, a bit of a, a hotbed uh, for that. So, um, you know, why, and why is that? Well, I, uh, one claim to fame for uh, for Canada, we were the, the first country uh, in the world, and Genesis was the brand um, that uh, was able to deliver an entirely online uh, purchase experience uh, f- from an automaker. Okay. Uh, where, you know, when Genesis launched here in Canada, um, you, uh, you they actually did not have any stores. When they launched, they did not yeah. have a single physical storefront that you could go to to buy a car. Uh, if you wanted to test drive it, they delivered it to your store, to, to your door. Yes. You summoned it like an Uber uh, yes. for a test drive. And if you wanted to purchase it, the purchase process was handled entirely online, entirely digital. And then uh, you scheduled a delivery where it's not quite a FedEx box, right? But uh, a tractor trailer with a, with a giant glass box in the back and your car uh, sitting in the box uh, that rolled up to your home and delivered the car to your door. And so... Um, and did, did the market respond? 
Yeah, you okay. know, I think when you uh, when you when you look at the the, I mean, we 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 spend a lot of time with customers and customers that have gone that gone through that experience. It's like for them buying a car was like Christmas. Yeah, right. Uh, and I don't think you'll hear a lot of people describe their car buying experience in that way. Um, but those moments of delight and joy uh, you know, uh, are throughout that Genesis car buying experience. And, you know, they wanted to use the car buying experience to differentiate uh, the brand because it was a new brand uh, launching uh, in the luxury end of the segment. And so they needed to do something different and make a bit of a splash. Um, so I think that was a, a, a certainly a claim to fame for us here in Canada, um, you know, being the, the first market to do that. I think Canada has a couple things going for it. Part of it is from a regulatory standpoint, um, you know, it's less onerous uh, in terms of that retail car buying journey. Um, uh, you, uh, the, that's not to say we aren't seeing innovation in the U.S., right? But uh, you, you don't so, see as many constraints uh, to, to that innovation. So what is it? What is a constraint that doesn't exist here that does exist in the U.S.? Yeah. So. You know, in uh, in the U.S., um, franchise laws and franchise regulations uh, for car deals are much more stringent. Okay, uh, and so you know, there's a lot of um, you know uh, legislative protection um, that uh, has entrenched. And you know, you've heard uh, the, the 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 stories about Tesla having to fight state by state for of the course. right to sell cars, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's a good example of that, right? Whereas in Canada, yeah, we have franchise dealerships for sure, and they are part of the model. Um, but uh, the 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 legislative framework is not as restrictive in trying out uh, new models. Um, you know, uh, I think dealers will forever be part of the equation. It's not a question of, you know, uh, do we get rid of the, the dealerships? We think they're an important part of the equation because they are the front line that provides uh, service, uh, you know, and support uh, to customers in local communities. Uh, and, you know, uh, that's not what an automaker is good at, right? So there's absolutely a role for the dealership, but to evolve the customer experience, I'll give you another example um, where uh, you know uh, uh, the, the policies or regulations um, you know make it harder for true innovation. So uh, in Canada, for for most part, most of the the, the lenders uh, do not accept e-signatures. Yeah. Right. Which is kind of funny um, because uh, you know uh, we're so used to using that technology on day to day basis, right? but they do not uh, accept uh, e-signatures. And so if you want to finance a vehicle, at some point in the process, you, have you to need come to, in. they call it a wet signature. You have oh. to pull out a pen yes. and sign it with ink, okay. right? It's just this one, and it's not even a, a like a legislative issue. You know, it's a compliance you know, policy thing that you know, the, the lenders just haven't gotten around to, to fixing, right? I think we'll get there, um, but uh, there's still uh, a lot of uh, pieces that need to move around. Uh, in order for uh, full kind of innovation to take hold. What is the the relationship between the automaker and the dealership? That That's probably the podcast in and of itself, but uh, in terms of the balance of power and when you're seeking to onboard uh, dealers onto Unhaggle, does it have to? Does that conversation have to take place at the local level, dealer by dealer? Or can you say to Honda, look, I, I need you to migrate all of you dealers on? It, it really depends. Uh, each uh, automaker has its own philosophy and, and approach. Okay. Um, but uh, there's, I think the it's both, uh, really. So there are some automakers that take a far more, uh, far more, uh, you know, active 
stance uh, when it uh, comes to managing their their dealer networks um, with you know more rules around what can and cannot be done and then there are other automakers that um, you know really uh, push power down to the dealerships and allow dealerships to operate as independent businesses uh, and you know make their own decisions so it really depends uh, on on which automaker you're talking about with regards to the, the relationship between automaker and dealer I think the big comment though is that they are both necessary right and they both have a role to play uh, and you know, the uh, it, it's always going to be a little bit of a push and pull. Um, I think, you know, you talk to dealerships, they're going to always want more autonomy. You yeah. talk to automakers, they're always going to want um, more, uh, you know, control. Um, but it's a symbiotic relationship. The the two can't exist uh, without each other. And we work with both. I will say that, you know, to my earlier comment around, you know, the attitude shift that we've seen, um, it's happened on both the automaker and the dealership side. Uh, you know, both... Uh, parties are are very much uh, looking into the future and, and recognizing that, hey, if we don't get better at, uh, at this, if we don't deliver better customer experiences, um, you know, there's real disruption around the corner that can happen, uh, you know, in our businesses. And, you know, I, I, one, I, I, I'm, I'm a believer that history repeats itself. Yeah. And, you know, a, a good way to, to, to lay this out is, you know, if you think about a parallel, you think about the travel industry, Okay, um, you know airlines, hotels, right? Uh, the reason uh, today, when you look at travel, um, you know, uh, the, the the there's so many different ways to buy, and you know, the, it's such a transparent experience. Um, is if you go back in time, the Travelocity, Expedia, Priceline. When you think about when they first came uh, onto market, right, uh, in the you know late '90s, early 2000s, when they really start to, to take hold transformed the way consumers and, um, you know, Canadian consumers bought and paid for travel and research travel, um, completely disrupted uh, yeah. how it was done. You fast forward today and you look at every airline and every hotel, whether you're, it's a regional or global chain, they all have competing booking capabilities and transactional experiences that are just as good, if not better, uh, than, you know, those uh, marketplaces that I talked about, the Travelocities, Expedias, yeah. and Pricelines. Like I actually, you know, prefer booking my plane ticket on, let's say, AirCanada.com because I actually think that they have a better booking experience than, you know, uh, some of the third-party marketplace websites. Sure. But you look at that dynamic, uh, it was those third-party marketplaces coming onto the scene, disrupting the way consumers uh, think uh, and, and, and you know, transacted and, and you know, behaved. Um, but the airlines and the hotels realized they, they had to react. They, in order to, to maintain their position, they needed competing capabilities that were just as good as the Travelocities, Expedia's price lines uh, of the world. And so they had to invest and upgrade their experiences. And today, you'd be hard-pressed to find any airline or hotel that doesn't have that capability. I think similar dynamic is happening in automotive where, you know, uh, whether it's Amazon uh, having rumblings of, of coming into the space and, and you know, uh, uh, coming into automotive retail um, or uh, existing marketplaces uh, moving beyond just listing sites where it captures a lead, but actually being able to facilitate transactions, right? Uh, I think those third-party marketplaces, much like how Expedia, Priceline, and you know, Travelocity um, were a catalyst for innovation uh, and, and disruption, uh, automakers and dealerships now, I think, are looking towards the future and recognizing, hey, if we don't invest in delivering better customer experiences and allowing customers to shop the way they want, um, we are setting ourselves up uh, for disruption. And this may be a segue into to what is your your new venture or, or newer Moto Insight. But I, I could see that on one hand, you want the BMWs and the automakers of the world to be uh, willing to embrace technology. But at the same time, at least as it pertains to Unhaggle, if they are really ahead of the curve, then they cease 
then there seems to be necessarily an opportunity for you. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where we believe change is a constant. Okay. Uh, and innovation uh, doesn't stop. At Moto Insight, um, you know, we help automakers and dealerships. We work with them uh, to redefine uh, retail uh, and, you know, how the retail experience should be and what the retail uh, journey uh, looks like. Um, but that process of re redefining uh, never actually ends, right? And so uh, certainly, you know, I can say with confidence uh, that uh, the experiences that we're enabling today and, you know, uh, putting uh, in, uh, enabling automakers and dealerships uh, to deliver uh, today with our technology. Um, the one thing I know for sure, uh, is, as I look out to the future, uh, it will not be the same. Yeah. Right? Uh, and you know, uh, for us, what we're doing in the journey of our, our, our company and, and our story is, we started uh, building consumer marketplaces, continues to be an important part of our DNA. It helps us understand what consumers want um, and you know, uh, what dealers need. Uh, and you know, uh, I view it, I view that part of our business really as um, us keeping a pulse uh, on you know those things, what consumers want and what dealers need. The 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 other part of our business that you mentioned, uh, Moto Insight, uh, which is really the side of our business where we work with automakers and dealerships to enable them to deliver their own better experiences. Uh, we're taking a lot of the technology and learnings that we first built for ourselves or we first gathered ourselves when we were building marketplaces and we're taking those and enabling automakers and dealerships uh, with them so that um, you know whether you buy uh, and transact on genesis.ca uh, or you go to um, you know unhaggle or you know kijiji the experiences on both ends um, are being elevated yeah andrew thank you so much uh really appreciate your time your insights your candor um this has been great to talk to you Thanks, Noel. It's good to see you. That was Andrew Tai, founder and CEO of Moto Insight. If you like this show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite listening app. Drop us a review or let us know a disruptive Canadian business leader who you'd like to hear from. I'm Noel Holzman. You can reach me at nholzman at oath.com or find me on Twitter at ngholzman. This show was produced by Stephanie Werner. We'll see you next week.